Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would come afresh in this second service this morning. And in particular, I ask that you would fall upon me and preach in the preaching of your word. May these words be your word for your people this morning. And give all of us ears to hear and open hearts to receive your word this morning and empower us to take that that seed of your word and to bear fruit in our lives this week and in the weeks and years to come. We lift this up humbly before your throne, dear God, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. <clears throat> Getting a little uh, throat here, singing, so, and then preaching in the second time. So bear with me, please. It's 2020. I don't know if anyone needs a, a reminder uh, about this year that we've been experiencing. Uh, but just for the sake, in case anyone's been uh, hiding their head under a rock or in the sand or have missed what's taken place, we're living in a rather extraordinary year for us, particularly in our lifetime. Definitely nothing new in the history of humanity, but unique and new to us. We've been experiencing a global pandemic, increasing anxiety, depression, and loneliness across the board, loss of jobs, loss of businesses, social unrest arising from racial injustices past and present, violent mobs destroying property and persons, the rise of cancel culture maliciously silencing those who dissent from the political and the cultural ideology that is in vogue at the moment. And one of the most contentious and illiberal presidential and down-ballot election seasons in recent history. And the nearly total collapse of social trust, as was recently argued by David Brooks in The Atlantic. <laughs> Are you all feeling that? And that's a year. It's a, we've been going through a lot. The world, it, it seems like it's turned upside down, does it not? And, and I mean, for one thing, this is wrestling us out of what might have been an illusion. Right? The world has always been like this since the fall. Broken, turned upside down, an upside down world. A world turned on its head. This year, though, it's removed any illusion that we've had based upon how well we've had it. You know, the things that have desensitized our vision uh, to the brokenness of our world, this year has totally totally removed the blinders. And so how do we respond as Christians? I think any, everyone, everyone in our culture is asking that question. How do we respond? How do we fix things? How do we respond? I mean, you hear it if you listen to any of the presidential debates or the messaging. Things are broken. And some people have the solution. How do we fix it? How do we respond? In our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus and the Spirit of God call us to respond to a world turned upside down in two ways. First, first the Spirit calls us to a certain confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has placed all his enemies under his feet. He is King. That's how we respond proclamation that Jesus Christ is King. Second, Jesus calls us to put that faith, that faith, that confession of faith into action by loving God and loving our neighbor. 
So look with me first. The Spirit calls us to confession that Jesus Christ, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God the Father has given him the place of equal authority at his right hand. God is on his throne and he has given Christ the spot at his right hand on that same pedestal where he is at. Equal to God, Jesus sits enthroned. The Lord has placed him there and under his feet, God has put all his enemies. He has subjected all the enemies of Christ to a place under his feet. And those enemies are sin, death, and the fallen principalities and powers of this age. How do we respond to a world turned upside down? Our gospel challenges us to do this. To boldly confess that Jesus Christ is the triumphant king of heaven and earth. He sits enthroned at the Father's right hand, having won the victory over sin, death, and the fallen powers of this age by means of his loving, self-sacrificial death on the cross and God's power that raised him from the dead. That's a lot. It's simply encapsulated in in this statement. Jesus Christ is Lord. He has won. That's the confession. That's how we respond to 2020. That's how we respond to a broken world marred by sin and death. One of Paul's deepest desires for the church in Ephesus sounds as if it's a meditation on this gospel passage. Though Paul sets it in a larger context of scripture and its cosmic narrative of God's saving work. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1. He desires that Christians may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and over every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's a mouthful. Paul knows how to write a sentence. Uh, You may think, I'm trying to emulate that at times, but Paul knows how to write a long, long sentence. But it's... It's such powerful good stuff that he can't stop to put a period down. This is wonderful stuff. Jesus Christ, by the power of God, has been raised from the dead, and he has seated him at his right hand over all that contests God's rule in this world. Whether a pandemic or sin or injustice or fallen demons or Satan, whatever it is, Jesus is over it. We need to proclaim that. First to ourselves. Maybe each morning, wake up, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we need to tell that to our friends, our co-workers. Jesus Christ is Lord. You want to know how to fix things? You want to know the solution to things? It's submission to Jesus Christ. That's what brings about a new world, a new reality. There's so much that we could say here in the gospel. But I just want to highlight a few things from the text. 
So if you have a if you have a pew Bible with you, your own Bible, I invite you just to turn there to the Gospel of St. Matthew to the 22nd chapter, and we'll begin looking in the 41st verse. We're going to work our way backwards, if that's okay. We'll start at the end and work to the front of this Gospel. Beginning in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Let me pause just there for a second. We need to step back just a second to gather the context. Just two days earlier in the, in, in the way this narrative has been set up, one chapter prior to chapter 22, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem for his final time for the Passover. This is the triumphal entry. And he has come in to the crowds of Jerusalem, the crowds from around Judea and all over the Greco-Roman world that have come back to Jerusalem for this feast. And they have been laying palm fronds on his way, on the ground in front of him. And they have been shouting what? Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. So remember that. When he asked them, whose son? Whose son is the Messiah? Who is this guy that that you're looking for. Who's this guy that the city has just proclaimed me to be? So he says, and they say, respond to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice that Jesus states that David in the spirit, which could be a great summary for the Psalms, a title for the Psalms. If we needed something else, for the, the, the name of the book, we could say David in the Spirit is the title of the Psalms. David in the Spirit, notice for Jesus, speaks. Present tense. Right, and this is, we could easily read over this, but this is so important. We would normally say if something happened in the past, it was written down, David said. David said in the Spirit. No, that's not how Jesus views the Psalms. That's not how he views the Scripture. David in the Spirit speaks. In the middle of their tumultuous world with Roman occupation and all the divisions that were going on in Jewish society, Jesus said, David in the Spirit in Psalm 110 speaks. And I want to tell you, Jesus, through the Spirit, all the biblical writers through the Spirit still speak today. The Spirit speaks through His Word. David in the Spirit still calls out to us as he called out when he originally wrote these words, and as they they rang out when Jesus said them to the Pharisees, Christ is Lord. That's what David proclaimed in the Psalms. Christ is Lord. The Messiah is Lord. The office of the Spirit is to say precisely this, and almost nothing else but this, that Christ is Lord. The Spirit is always proclaiming the Son. These three words are the center of Scripture. These three words are the signature of the Spirit speaking in Scripture and through His church, through the church of Christ. So not only does Scripture proclaim this proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, we, as those who have been filled by the Spirit, proclaim in such a world as ours and at such a time as this that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Spirit is still speaking today in 2020 in the midst of all that we are experiencing and He gives us as the church our chief response. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
This is our chief response to an upside-down world, to a broken world, to upside-down lives, to broken relationships. Jesus is Lord. Why is this an appropriate response? The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord proclaims, we can't miss this, is so packed into it, that Jesus Christ has won. It proclaims the victory of God in Jesus over sin, death, and the fallen powers of this age. Each Sunday when we gather together, we confess this truth as a subversive act of resistance against the enemies of God, against the enemies of humankind, and against the enemies of creation. That God has put them, this is the confession, that God has put them under Jesus' feet. And one day when he returns, he will subject them and banish them completely from this creation. They will be no more. As the book of Revelation proclaims, every tear will be wiped away. Death will be done away with. Christ has won. He is Lord. I'm going to keep saying it over and over again. I hope it sinks in. And we need to set this within the full context of Scripture and its narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Set within that context, Jesus is saying that the Christ and his role as the Christ, that he is the one who will bring the saving, healing rule of the creator God to all creation. And that the enemies of of God, that the enemies that God will put under his feet, as Psalm 110 insists, will not be the Gentile enemies of the ethnic people of God, the people of Israel, but the ultimate enemies of humankind and indeed the whole of creation, sin, death, and the fallen powers Satan, fallen demons, those which seek to subvert God's rule in God's world. Jesus reveals that these enemies of God's kingdom can only be defeated by David's Lord. David said, my Lord said to me, my Lord said to me that your Lord, that my Lord is at his right hand. David's son is so much more than his son. The Messiah is so much more than David's son. He's David's Lord. He's the cosmic Christ. He's Christ going to meet the enemies of God in single, unarmed combat. And in this knowledge, Jesus continues his work, as Matthew so beautifully describes, all the way to the cross itself. And it is by the cross... And it is through the resurrection that God has placed all enemies under the feet of Christ. And in this way, and by these means, God, through Christ, is restoring what has been broken. His work of making all things new has already begun in each of you. And I know if we had the time, and each one of us came up here, we could tell stories of God's grace, of new life breaking in, to our broken lives and bringing restoration, healing, comfort, forgiveness. The new creation is here. It's among us. Jesus Christ is Lord. C.S. Lewis captures this reality so beautifully in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read it, read it. It's more than a children's story. It's an apologetic for the faith. Toward the end of the book, 
The witch embodies in many ways the fallen powers, and she lays claim to Edmund's life because he did a very bad thing in betraying Aslan, who is a lion, and others. As the story unfolds, Aslan makes a deal with the witch, his life for Edmund's. The witch accepts his bargain, longing to be rid of Aslan once and for all from Narnia. As night falls, Aslan sneaks out of the camp without anyone noticing, except for Edmund's two sisters, Susan and Lucy. They follow after him to see where he's going. Where's Aslan going? Aslan walks to the witch's camp, and it is there where he is bound. He's humiliated. His mane is shaved off, and he is sacrificed on a stone table in Edmund's place. And after the witch and her ilk leave, they leave him there bound and gagged and dead. The girls rush down to Aslan's corpse and they mourn his death. Yet after a while, as the dawn rises, Aslan's dead corpse reanimates and is made alive again. He is very much resurrected, brought back to new life. And the girls, as you can imagine, Lucy and Susan, are overjoyed and also bewildered. And in Susan's bewilderment, she asks, what can all this mean? To which Aslan responds with these words. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Isn't that a beautiful way? A beautiful way of describing the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the result in his resurrection that death begins to work backwards to life again. Death has been conquered. It is no more. Life is here, the new life of God's kingdom. Guess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Death is undone. The new life of God's kingdom is here. I want us all to say that together. Jesus Christ is Lord. Death is undone. The new life of God's kingdom is here. Say that with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Death is undone. The new life of God's kingdom is here. One more time, like we mean it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Death is undone. The new life of God's kingdom is here. Amen. That's how we respond to 2019. When we make this confession, we confess that the stone table is indeed cracked and that death is indeed working backwards to life again. Life, the new life of God's kingdom, resurrection life is here and it is available to us in the midst of the brokenness of 2020. That's the first response our gospel gives us. The second follows from it, indeed hangs upon it. Second, Jesus now calls us to put the faith we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord into action by loving God 
and loving our neighbors. Now, I imagine some of you are probably saying to yourselves, well, that sounds good. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's good and well. I believe that. But words, what good are they right now in the middle of 2020? What good is, what good is this proclamation? And in part, I would agree. Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord is not the whole of our response to a world turned upside down. What we must come to see, though, is that, it, that this confession is the foundation for everything, and it has implications for our lives, and not just part of our lives, but every aspect of our lives, and not just, and not just for our lives, but for everything in this world. Every square inch of this creation, Jesus Christ is Lord, has implications. As Ben's been saying, I think the last two sermons, uh, a, a quote from Abraham Kuyper, over this creation stands the risen Christ, and he says, mine. It's his, all of it, your life, every part of it, this creation, every inch of it is Jesus Christ, the Lord's. Because Jesus Christ is Lord over all things, his answers to the three questions posed to him in Matthew 22 that are meant to test him by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to trip him up, they are binding on us because the Lord spoke the answers and they bear his authority because he is the one who sits enthroned at God's right hand. And those three questions hit three very important, very uh, contested topics in our world. Politics. Jesus Christ is Lord over politics. He is Lord, so we pay our taxes. We give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. We give to the United States government what belongs to the United States government. But we also give to God what belongs to to God. And that's everything. We give him our whole lives, mind, soul, body, possessions, wealth, talent, skills, vocations, homes, children, spouses, everything. Theology. The Sadducees come to him. We didn't read this last week or in our lectionary passages, but the Sadducees come to test him about the resurrection. They didn't believe in it. The Pharisees did. They wanted to see where Jesus stood. In theology, Jesus Christ stands as Lord. I hate the fact that we have to say that, but it has to be said. Not everybody believes it. Jesus Christ is Lord, so we confidently rest assured that God is not the God of corpses. He is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. Aren't you glad? And we will come together next week, all saints, and celebrate the Feast of All Saints, where we can celebrate the living that, God, that God's grace has kept alive and quickens life even of those who have passed. They are not dead and gone and never to be seen again. They are very much alive. What does Jesus say to them? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As if they are alive, because they are. He is the God of the living. Jesus Christ, in this third question, the one we'll focus on, deals with ethics. And Jesus Christ is the Lord over ethics, how we conduct ourselves in private and in public. Jesus Christ is Lord. So we have been given new life and the Spirit's power, which enables us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the second response to this year. Love God, love neighbors. What Jesus says here about 
loving God and loving one another only makes sense when we set it within Matthew's larger gospel picture. This larger picture of Jesus dying for the sins of the world and rising again from the dead with the message of new life. Set within this larger gospel picture, these commandments begin to come into their own when they are not seen so much as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises to a new way of life given to us by God's Spirit in which, bit by bit, right? How hard is it to love someone? It's hard work. It doesn't, we can't do this all at once. We're fallen creatures ourselves, but bit by bit, hatred and pride can be left behind. Selfishness can be left behind. Jealousy can be left behind. And God's kingdom can begin to emerge as a reality in our lives and in our relationships and in our world. We begin to bear the fruit of the kingdom in this church. We begin to bear the fruit of the kingdom in our homes. We begin to bear the fruit of the kingdom in our vocations, in our workplaces. All over this city and in this country and in this world, we begin to bear the fruit that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has brought a new dawn. Look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. With me, if you have your gospel still open. And here in these verses, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5. This is the great Shema, this thing that was committed and said every morning and every evening by, uh, by devout Jews throughout the world. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God. Jesus does not say love your God. This is so important. He does not say love your God. He, clear, he clearly insists or resists the ever-present human temptation to fashion God in our own image. Don't love your God. Love the Lord your God. Jesus is saying here, love the Lord your God. And he clearly identifies God as Yahweh of the Old Testament. This God has a recorded history of faithfulness with his people and to his people, and for his world. We are directed to love the Lord our God, the God who has already done great saving things for his people and for the world in Israel, and has chiefly and supremely done so in Jesus Christ, as Matthew's gospel will go on to tell us at the cross and at the resurrection. Jesus commands us in this phrase, love your God, love the Lord your God. Jesus commands us to love the God who first loved us. Don't love yourselves. Don't love the projections of what you want or desire in this world. Love the Lord your God who has given you everything. Thus the love that Jesus in scripture commands here is an answering love. It's a responsive love. A love that answers the love of God, the love God has shown towards us with adoration and worship of him and the love of others. That's why we come together each Sunday. To adore God, to adore the Father, to adore Jesus Christ the Son, to adore the Spirit. Because they, the God, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has loved us supremely. Look at how Jesus continues in verse 37. Continuing his quote from Deuteronomy 6, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The love of the Lord your God, the adoration and worship of God demands the whole of your person. All that you possess. It demands all of you. 
When you come through those doors, when you walk out of those doors, God expects all of you, every bit of you. Loving with all your heart and loving with your mind involves loving God fully from within you, your will, your desires, your passions, your affections, perceptions, and thoughts that are rightly aligned. God desires them all. And these and with these we love him. The life of love is impossible apart from Jesus Christ being Lord because as the ascended Lord, he sends his spirit, think Pentecost here, to remake our hearts. The spirit of God is descended and dwells in each of us. And a part of that is that he rips out the heart of stone that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about. And he has replaced it, transplanted it with a heart of flesh, a heart able to love God and love one another. We can now enter into worship with pure hearts. Along with our hearts and minds, Jesus also calls us to love God with all of your soul. In Scripture, the soul refers to one's whole being as a living person, which includes the heart and the mind, but also much more. It includes our bodies. Look, for example, or think or listen to this from Genesis 2-7. We are told there that God formed the first man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The word creature is soul in Hebrew. He became a living soul, an enfleshed soul. Mind, heart, body, soul. Not some ghost-like thing that's existing off in the ether that we might think of as a soul. No, an enfleshed soul, a whole person. We're supposed to love God with our whole person. Jesus starts with a call to love God from within, the heart and the mind, and then moves one step larger, saying that everything about us as a person is to adore, is to worship, is to love the God revealed to us in Jesus. So we're to love God with our passions, our hungers, our desires and perceptions and thoughts. But we are also to love him with how we talk, how we use our bodies, what we do with our hands, how we utilize our talents, how we utilize our wealth, how we react to challenges, especially the challenges of this, this year. Reader, to love God with our entire being. And that entire being is to display in every part of it, in every aspect of it, the love of God. We need, I don't know about you, but we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to do that. I can't do that. I am helpless on my own. The Spirit has to be quickening my heart to love God in these ways. But finally, we are to love God with our strength. Now Jesus, he leaves this bit out. From, De from Deuteronomy 6. He, he says mind instead of strength. But over in, in the Gospel of Luke and in Mark, uh, there we have recorded the full breadth here. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think it's so important that we don't want to leave it out this morning. So in Deuteronomy 6, the Hebrew word and, and, and then the Greek word in Mark and Luke that are used to translate this, it means strength, might, or power. But this word refers not only, this refers not only to uh, the person, but to all that, that is at one's disposal. The word might, strength, power refers not only to the person, but all that is at one's disposal. Scripture calls us to love God beginning with our heart and mind and then working out to our whole person. And now finally, he calls us into one step further into this love to include all of our resources, everything we have at our disposal, our power, our strength, our wealth. 
This means that the call to love God is not only with our physical power or the strength of our intelligence, but with everything we have available for honoring him. Everything. This includes our spouses. This includes our beautiful children. This includes our house, our pets, our wardrobe, our tools, everything. Our cell phones, computers, movies, music, everything we do as humans. Jesus is calling us to love God with it all. Our bank accounts, our retirement accounts, all of it is to be used for the, in loving God. The love of God that Jesus in Scripture calls us to is totalizing. It involves everything, and I hope that's come out clearly. It requires that we love, adore, and worship God with all that we are and all that we have been given. The love we're called to must be wholehearted, life-encompassing, community-impacting, exclusive commitment to our God. That's the love of God. And this God is our God only because he has now revealed himself to us in the person of his son, Jesus. This kind of love we should have, this is the kind of love we should have for him. Whole person love. And it can't exist apart from the spirit. Lastly, Jesus calls us not only to love God, but also to love our neighbor. And I'm going to wrap this up rather quickly here because we're getting uh, down in time. But God calls us to love our neighbor. Both the love of God and the love of neighbor are equally important. And this is so important here. Listen to this. A neighbor minimizing love of God is as reprehensible to Jesus as a God minimizing love of neighbor is unfathomable to him. A neighbor minimizing love of God, a love of God that could care less about one's neighbor. A neighbor minimizing love of God is as reprehensible to Jesus as a God minimizing love of neighbor is unfathomable to him. The kind of love that says, oh, I love you, do whatever, be whatever, even though it's not God's good and God's best for them. That's not a love of neighbor. It's certainly not a love of God. Both false loves are ever-present temptations for us in our world. In Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, he confronts a neighbor minimizing love of God. I want to turn there briefly and give us a vision that Jesus gives us for loving our neighbor. You might be familiar with this story. A lawyer, a lawyer comes to Jesus, and he's seeking to test him, and he says, Rabbi, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, what, we, what we've been looking at. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way to eternal life. And the lawyer can't complain, can't disagree. Identifies one thing, though. One more question. Who's my neighbor? Because that lawyer, there are people that he knows are not his neighbors. Samaritans, not neighbors. Gentiles, not neighbors. The neighbors are the people I like. People like me. My, my Jewish brethren, my Jewish sisters. Who's my neighbor? And of course, Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan, that this man was robbed and beaten and laying on the ground, and Levites and priests, Jewish leaders, religious leaders, walk past him, a move off, far off to the other side to avoid any close contact with this man. But then in verse 33, Jesus says this, But a Samaritan, the hated, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this beaten man, and when he saw him, he had compassion. First two things of, of love of neighbor. 
eyes that see. We need to be able to see those who are beside us, those who are near us, and that sight ought to evoke in us compassion. That's Jesus at work. That's how Jesus walked about the world. He saw people that were beside him and near him, and he had compassion. The other saw and turned away. Who are you turning away from? You look and you have compassion. Let's continue. Verse 34, he went to him, the Samaritan did, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And the next day he took out two denarii, sorry, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asked, Which one of these loved his neighbor? And the answer is clear, the Samaritan. But in those last verses there, the two final things of loving a neighbor emerge. Seeing, you've got to look at those who are around you, and the spirit in you is, is moving you to compassion on folks. But then finally, the love of neighbor risks much. This Samaritan picked up this, this man on a road where there are no inns. The closest inn from archaeology that we know is in Jericho. Jericho is a Jewish town, and it's a town where this Samaritan is not welcomed. You can think of African Americans in 1950s, 1960s Alabama, the kind of welcome that they might have in a place. This man is not welcomed, yet he risks it anyways for the love of a neighbor. And then finally, he gives much. The love of neighbor that God, that Jesus calls us to, is a love that gives much. He gave of his own resources. He gave of his own time. He's going to come back and check on this man. That's the kind of love of neighbor that Jesus calls to. A love that sees. A love that has compassion. A love that risks much. And a love that gives much. Because the love of our neighbor flows from the love of God, we are called to love those whom we find beside us. Wherever we are, like the Samaritan and like Jesus, we are to call, we are called to love them self-sacrificially, giving all that God has given to us, to them. So how do we respond to a world turned upside down? We confess with the Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then we love God with all that we have and all that we are. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. May God Help us to do that now and forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.